craving. I thought I'd open up this talking a little bit about the life of the Buddha because his life is a pedagogical value. Uh, he lived 2,500 years ago. Nothing about him was written down in the first 100 years after his death. So it's dodgy at best to, to lay claim to the idea that any of the life of the Buddha is factual. Uh, what we can instead understand from that is that it contains some messages or uh, dharmic insights as well as the rest of the dharma. And it's kind of interesting just to hear about his journey and how it set him up for his um, some of his insights, specifically the core insights. Um, <coughs> If you're interested, a lot of his life is contained in the sutta called the Mahasaka Sutta. Um, I'm going to read some of his own words, or at least the words that were attributed to him in the Pali Canon. And um, bearing in mind again that these words are probably not historically factual, but are just what has been attributed to him. Of course, the Pali Canon has been around for well over 2,200 years, so it is very old, even though it was not written down right after the Buddha's death. So, it starts out by saying, I was born into a wealthy family and lived in three palaces. My clothes were beautiful and imported from Varanasi. Servants held shades over my head to protect me from the sun. I was entertained by musicians and dancers. What he's saying is, in other words, he lived in splendor. And he lived in his... It's said that his father, to uh, dissuade him from getting caught up in too much of the sorrows of life, dissuaded him from traveling too much, where he would see the poverty and the sickness and the death that surrounded the splendor of the castles where he lived. But of course he did on his own, and he saw that the world has a lot of aging, sickness, and death, and he saw that people spent a lot of energy trying to avoid seeing the truth of existence, which is that it's not always uh, pretty, that there's also a lot of challenging experiences. And so he comes to the conclusion that his life, living in you know his household existence, was essentially distracting him from coming to grips with the core existential issues that all of us have to face. And it's, he is, I realize that people concerned with beauty and wealth and accumulation viewed others who are old, sick, or dying with disgust or agitation. They're oblivious to the fact that we're all subject to the same. That's foolish. In other words, it's foolish to view other people who are old, sick, or dying with any agitation this is going to happen to each of us, seeing that the life of accumulation that he was living led to distraction from what's most important. I shaved off my hair and beard. I put on the robes of a spiritual practitioner, which in his time were deep, sort of dark orange, and still Theravadan monks wear the same ochre color. And I left home and embraced homelessness. So he becomes a mendicant spiritual practitioner, which was very in vogue in his time. And um, so already he views excess wealth, 
being fixated on accumulation uh, as not the answer for um, human happiness, the human predicament. And that places him, well, let's face it, already at a rather young age, he was pretty advanced and willing to turn his back on the materialist existence. So he goes out and he meets two other spiritual practitioners, Alara Kalama and Adhaka Ramaputra. They teach him everything he knows, but he's still dissatisfied. He can't find unconditional peace of mind that's available uh, no matter what state he's in. Whether He achieves great states of peace while he's meditating, but when he's not meditating and engaging with other people, uh, he finds himself still stressed out. So he's still looking for the answer. And um, both offer him, because they both revere his skills, but he's not satisfied. So he goes off and he finds a group of Jains. And Jains are extremely strict spiritual practitioners who refrain from anything that causes comfort. And the idea is that if you strip away everything that causes or provides any human comfort and you uh, reveal the underlying anxiety, pain, difficulty of existence, that somehow you get some great spiritual insights. And so he says about that period of his life, I consumed nothing that was cooked. I subsisted only on greens or grains or rice or moss or eventually grass. I fed on fallen fruits, then food that was not good enough for a dog around which flies buzzed. I ate one morsel a day, then I only ate once every two days and once a week, then eventually I only ate once every two weeks. I clothed myself in discarded rags, then in the hide of a deceased antelope, then eventually I roamed completely naked. So he must have been quite a sight. His <laughs> naked, starving, he said that he was so thin that you could see his spine from the front. I. Uh, stood or squatted continuously. I rejected any comfortable seats and my muscles withered away. And eventually he decides that this doesn't work either. Uh, surprise. He says that all that happened was he was miserable and in pain and that didn't provide much insight either. So, he ends the austerities. He eats some rice and porridge that are offered and uh, he sits underneath the Bodhi tree and he attains enlightenment. And I'll tell you what that consists of in a moment. When he first, after he attains his enlightenment, he goes off and he, well, he first sits there and he thinks, well, I could be comfortable here or I could possibly teach this, but it's really kind of challenging to teach this path in a world that's filled with materialism and consumption and accumulation. But he finally decides to do that he meets one person on the road. He tries to say, I've become enlightened. I am the one who's achieved the unconditional peace of mind. And before you can even get to what it is, the person goes, yeah, I think I'll pass. <laughs> so his first attempt to teach is an utter misery. And I think any of you, like myself, who have taught in your life, you can relate to that experience. So finally, he goes back to the five Jains that he practiced the austerities with. And he says, listen. You don't have to do all this. There's a simpler way. You don't have to reject uh, the world completely, nor do you 
will you find it from indulgence and accumulation and material comforts? And so he says there are four keys to understanding uh, what creates unconditional peace of mind. The first is, in quotes, in life there's a lot of suffering. He doesn't say, which is, was attributed to him in English translations, which is not what he said. He did not say, life is suffering. That would be stupid. Uh, he simply said, in life, there is suffering. And I don't think any of us would argue with that. I've never met anybody who rolls into Dharma punks or any Buddhist meeting with, when their life is swimmingly great. There would be no point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we do come in here and we do look for meditation not just because we think it's a great idea, but because there's a certain amount of anxiety, stress, suffering. If any of you are here just for a school project or to write a, a report, that's great, but most of us come rolling in because there's some suffering in life. And the Buddha says not only is there the inevitable suffering or miseries of old age, sickness, and death, but there's the agitation and stress we add on that's not necessary and that's the bulk of our suffering which is being stuck with difficult people or difficult situations being separated from people we love or situations or things we love not getting the things we want and clinging to fleeting sensual experiences so he's saying that Essentially, there's a lot of needless suffering in life, and it's caused by that. Uh, it's caused by something. So then he says, "What is that thing that causes the needless suffering in life? Not the inevitable suffering of old age, sickness, and death, but all that needless suffering of clinging to things that will pass and uh, being reactive and." Uh, wanting life to be others. And he says that the cause of our needless suffering that creates the bulk of our discomfort in life is craving. Craving is the mind that resists life as it is and wants life to be different and wants to simply, essentially accumulate, latch on to, grab hold of, become something different. And he says that there's a way not to live in craving. And when we let go of craving, we can actually find an enormous amount of peace. When we stop trying to solve life by accumulating, acquiring, achieving, becoming, when we actually let go of that, that's when we start to experience peace. So it's very important to note here that the Buddha is not saying that you have to get anything, you have to attain any great insight or some great... Uh, experience that you have to go to a cave in the Himalayas. You don't have to accumulate anything. It's actually the spiritual practice starts by letting go, by putting aside. Anybody can do it. It's not about you're missing anything. It's about, in fact, the opposite, the belief that we're missing something that we have to get, that we were born incomplete, or that we don't have what it takes to be happy. That is the problem. That is the problem. So, um, why do we have craving? Let's investigate it a little bit more, what exactly this means and how we can go about putting it aside. At this point, I'm going to do what I normally do, is I'm going to put on hold for a moment all the Dharma, and I'm going to bring in my other trusty friend, 
neuroscience and psychology. I like to wed the two together. So let's start by saying that we are all living in brains that are way out of date. I hate to tell you, but you were born with an outdated operating system. Your brain, out of the box, out, right out of the store, when you open up your brain, you start using it, you're using something that's 100,000 years out of date. Why do I say this? Well, uh, we actually stopped pretty much interbreeding. There's been no evolutionary uh, change very much to the structure of the human brain in the last 100,000 years. And what that means is that we still live in brains that in look at the world, perceive the world from the perspective of a predator-prey. What does that mean? Human beings 100,000 years ago were not just predators eating rabbits and, and other prey like sheep and goats and cows, but we were also prey ourselves. We were being hunted not just by hyenas and snakes and bears, but we were also prey of other human beings. So we have, we are all born in, with midbrains that are set on, with amygdalas, which are our alarm fear systems, are set far too high. We're all far too anxious, given the fact that we have now, in the last 5,000 years, become super predators, in essence, we have nobody killing or hunting us anymore. We are extremely safe. Most of us will never have to run for our lives at any point in our life. Most of us will never have to fight for our lives. Yet we have midbrains that are still set for the way the world was 100,000 years ago because there's been no evolution. We still have the brains that reward us for achieving any advantage to survival. Now that's important. Not only do we have jumpy amygdalas and, and our heartbeats are far too high for super predators, unlike sea turtles which have lived all their predators so they can now live to 187, move slowly, they don't have to fight off anything, they have incredibly slow heartbeats because they don't have to do shit. They don't have to do anything. They just walk around eat some grass or whatever sea turtles eat, but they are not in any danger. But we are not in any danger, but our heart rates are exceptionally fast, much needlessly fast. All of our midbrain is set on a survival level that's needless. And on top of that, the dopamine reward system, which rewards you for short-term survival advantages when you get some food, when you get a tool that makes it easier for you to survive, when you buy clothing, when you get a little bit better shelter, your and my brain blast us with dopamine. Dopamine was really a wonderful idea 100,000 years ago because at that point, if we didn't have dopamine, none of us would have left the safety of our you know, clan where we were huddled unless we were absolutely convinced that we were safe. So dopamine was the reward system that pushed us to go out and to accumulate goods that would help us survive the short-term night, help us get food, help us get more clothing, more firewood, more etc. So it makes sense, given the way we lived in the past, that 
accumulating short-term advantages was deeply rewarded. And dopamine not only makes us feel great, but dopamine also provides a boost of, um, it activates the regions of the brain, the cingulate, associated with attention, the basal ganglia, which is associated with volitional movement, and pleasure. It also releases endogenous endorphins, which means that when you chase after or accumulate something that is to your survival advantage, you are given the rewards of enkephalins and endorphins, which numb your pain, stress, and then that, the, the normal human default setting is to be anxious and stressed, because again, we're living as if the world was far more dangerous than it is. So when you are hunting for food or anything material, your brain diminishes the feelings of stress, diminishes anxiety, pain, any discomfort, and it makes you fixated on that goal. So that's why craving, trying to accumulate, acquire, achieve happiness through things, through fame, through career, through self-improvement, um, is so enticing. Craving, eventually over time, takes control of the human, um, uh, of many other uh, functions and areas of the brain. It starts wiring, uh, it's wiring the brain specifically to acquire certain objects or things that make us feel, uh, that act activate dopamine, that make us feel good. The problem is, of course, that if you begin to get hooked on a few things to make you feel good, whether it's food, or in my case, when I was in my 20s and 30s, drugs and alcohol, or shopping, or gambling, or any of the other things that people become addicted to, then what happens is you habituate. Now, what is habituation? The brain rewards novelty to get the same amount of dopamine, the same amount of opioids, to feel the same blast of pleasure. You need to have more and more and more to get the same relief. And what happens when you don't get more and more is the dopamine drops, and you become aware of the ambient stress that's around all the time. And something else happens when the body, when the brain, sorry, uh, drops its level of dopamine, then cortisol is released, which creates stress. So now, our chasing after survival advantages is making us even more stressed out than when we started. We started out pretty anxious, but now we're even more anxious than when we started out. So to get rid of that growing stress, the awareness of physical discomfort, because we're no longer on uh, endogenous opioids, we start trying to achieve more. We seek more approval. We put out more posts on Facebook. We try to accomplish more. There was a study by mentioned in Jonathan Haidt's research where they found that businessmen who do a deal for $100,000 to get, release the same amount of dopamine in the future, they have to do a deal for 200,000. And then, to get the same amount of dopamine, they have to do a deal for 400,000. So it doesn't just raise a little bit, it actually starts to raise logarithmically. That means you start having to chase more and more and more to get the same amount of, uh, uh, of relief. Now, 
The question might be, what is the difference between craving and addiction? Craving, uh, in early Buddhism, every human brain has. Every human brain is born with the default setting of feeling overly anxious, overly threatened, and overly rewarded by accumulating things in the world. So we all are subject to craving until we start to rewire the brain towards solutions which are in our long-term benefit. Craving focuses us on short-term advantages. Addiction, which in early Buddhism was known as pitas, hungry ghosts, beings that, when, when according to early Buddhism, people who are addicted, when they die, they uh, turn into these beings that have big fat bellies and long thin necks and little tiny mouths so they can never eat enough to, uh, to fill themselves up. Hungry ghosts, I've always loved that. And unfortunately, there's already a band called the Hungry Ghosts, so you're too late if you were thinking that. Like, everybody else, oh, that would be a great band name, the Hungry Ghosts. So, um, addicts take craving to the next level. They don't just look for survival advantages in the world. They fixate on one specific survival advantage, and they fixate on it to the degree that relationships and functional life begins to become compromised, where they no longer can show up for engaged work. Most addicts, such as myself, experienced some damaged relationships in their early life where they stopped looking to other people for what's known as emotional co-regulation, people to help us calm down, to help us relax, to help talk about our feelings. We became so disenchanted with other people that we look towards substances, whether it's food or alcohol or drugs, to do all of our emotional regulation for us. So in Buddhism, all people have craving. All people are subject to a certain degree to try to solve their anxiety, their emotions, their discomfort by accumulating short-term pleasures, whether it's fame or approval from other people or a good reputation or sensual pleasures. But addicts fixate on individual practices of drugs or, or shopping, one thing, and they do it to a degree that everything else in their life begins to fall apart. So there's a, a significant overlap. Now, the other thing I want to say is that craving is different from self-soothing behaviors. Craving is somebody who engages in a task simply for the outcome. They're trying to achieve, finish, accumulate, get to the reward. So any activity that we do simply to get to the end state reward where we're trying to achieve or accumulate something is an activity that could turn into a craving or addiction. On the other hand, self-soothing behaviors are invariably skillful. Self-soothing behaviors are things like gardening, drawing, making music, uh, painting, uh, knitting, woodwork, something that flows your attention into your hands, that you're engaged with an activity. 
The differences between flow states or that are self-soothing and craving activities, which are essentially stress-producing in the long term, are a couple. One, a craving activity, you're focused on the end result. You don't enjoy the processes while you're doing it. You just want to get to the end. Two, if you stop a craving activity like shopping or accumulating drugs or alcohol, you get to the bar, you're just about to order from the bartender, and your friend goes, hey, you know, Joey, there you are. I don't know why they're talking in that voice. They say, let's get out of here, let's go for a walk, let's do something fun. You won't want to do that because you're focused on accumulating the alcohol. If you have no problem with it, if you're not in craving, you'd be able to drop and say, sure, I don't need that drink. I'll just go out and we'll hang out. Self-soothing flow behaviors, whether they're woodworking, gardening, whatever, you get a phone call, somebody interrupts you, you realize you forgot to do something, you stop doing it, there's no stress or suffering that arises as a result. Why is that? A craving-based activity is fueling your focused attention and your engaged behavior by dopamine. When you stop doing something that's craving, you start becoming anxious, you start feeling squirrely, is the word some people use, physically uncomfortable, you become aware that your breath is a little bit fast, your body becomes more anxious, you feel unfulfilled, you feel impatient, you feel cut off. On the other hand, when you're gardening or knitting, I could only imagine, I don't know how to knit, but if somebody calls you up or distracts you, you don't feel any stress because none of those activities are fueled by dopamine. In fact, they're simply fueled by acetylcholine, which is a totally different neurotransmitter. That's the cingulate. That's the, um, it's, a, it's a neurotransmitter that simply focuses your attention in a pleasant way. So you stop doing it. There's no... Uh, there's no um, uh, stress that arises. When you're engaged in a craving activity, your entire world is about getting that thing. Finishing that project, you know, getting that phone call, getting that attention, getting that recognition, getting that object, buying, hitting click on Amazon. Yes! Uh, and that is the only thing you're aware of, you are not aware of your emotions or moods. It's so fixated your attention that you don't feel your feelings. You have very little body awareness. When you are in a self-soothing behavior, on the other hand, you feel your emotions. You're not fixated because it's simply acetylcholine, not dopamine. You, not all of your attention is narrowly focused. Dopamine activates left hemispheric narrow focus. Acetylcholine is both right and left so you actually maintain some body awareness. So when we're in a self-soothing flow behavior, the time passes quickly, we're really engaged, we enjoy what we're doing. If you want to get a job, if you want to find a livelihood, do something that puts you in flow, not puts you in craving. Okay? Do something that you enjoy, that you would still do, even if you got no payment or money for it. If you stopped doing it, you wouldn't get totally stressed out, you could do it the next morning. Don't try to do work where it's totally about the end result and while you're doing it, you're, you're, you're totally fixated and you can't put it down. Not a good idea. So finally, um, the Dharma 
suggests that there are unconditionally available resources that every human being has all the time that you never need to accumulate, that you're born with, that you don't have to hunt down that can bring you substantial peace. One, you have the concentration tools that we used at the beginning. Every human being probably has a breath, body sensations, sounds. We have tools that we can use to focus awareness on, pull attention away from accumulating or acquiring, and instead work with, for instance, the breath or the sounds or the body sensations to relax and settle the mind. Two, we have mindfulness the tools of which I've talked about a lot, where we can sit and create a safe container and become aware of the emotions that we need to uh, attend to, take care of, reparent, nurture. We also have the Sanghas, all of us here. So you might want to connect with a specific person, somebody that you're really attracted to, or you might want to get love from a specific person in the world, it might not happen. But all around New York, every day of the week, not only are there Buddhist meetings, there are 12-step meetings, there are Universalist, Unitarian, Quaker meetings, they're all great, because they're all filled with other human beings. And if you let go of fixating on one person and simply learn to connect with other human beings and express the experiences that are going on in your life, that activates another neurotransmitter that will create long-term happiness that is sustainable. That neurotransmitter is called serotonin. Serotonin is a very, very easy neurotransmitter to activate. You find somebody, you look in their eyes, you connect with them, you express your feelings, you let them know what you need in terms of friendship and companionship, I, you set some boundaries. Bingo, you will start to raise your serotonin levels over the long term. None of this requires accumulating anything. You don't have to, there's nothing missing for your life. The people who can provide connection and understanding are all around you. You don't have to buy, shop, or achieve them. There are here right now in this room. That's tonight's talk. Hope there was some information in it somewhere that was worth listening to.